Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. So welcome to this new Modern Carnivore Podcast, and I'm happy to have you here today with me, and I'm also joined by Todd Waldron. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. It's great to be here. How are you? You know, it's, uh, it's going well. I'm, I'm doing well and still in the, in the height of, uh, of ice fishing season here in Minnesota. I got out on Sunday with, with our kids doing a little angling. It was pretty, pretty slow, but, uh, fun to get out. Nonetheless, have you, have you gotten out anymore yourself? So I also got out on Sunday here and it was a extremely windy day. The pike were on Sunday morning and uh, my wife and daughter came up for a couple of hours. So I was fishing at this lake that was pretty close by. I went up, got set up. They came up, had lunch, you know, and it was great. And then they went home. Um, so caught some pike, had a good time and uh, really thankful for the opportunity to get out. Yeah, I do remember seeing that picture you had of the pike. It looked like it looked like a pretty nice uh, northern pike you had on the ice. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely it was a good one. So it was uh, it was a fun day. And it's funny, you know, I, I had posted a social picture on that. And as soon as I posted the picture, uh, the, the pike shut down and I only had like one or two more flags, <laughs> but, I, but I had such a good time. It didn't matter. The girls were there and it was a great day. So I'm always thankful to get out ice fishing. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, we were, we were joking. So our daughter's nine or our son is 11 and, and, uh, almost every time I've taken my daughter out she ends up stepping in the hole at some point. <laughs> and uh, this was the first trip where she did not. So it was a milestone. Okay. That's great. Yeah. We also have the uh, stick your hands in the bait bucket kind of syndrome, you know, where the mittens get wet in about 10 minutes. So I, I'm with you on the, on the whole. I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, just a little uncomfortable when it's an angling hole. When it's a spearing hole, it's a, it's a whole other, other deal. Big time. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, t- today we've got, uh, we got a great guest today for, for the podcast and it is Mr. Andrew Zimmern, who most people know from his very popular TV shows such as Bizarre Foods, Zimmern List, and others. And he actually just launched a new uh, a new show on the Magnolia Network, which uh, is called Family Dinner, which I, th- I think promises to be really a really good show. I, I watched the first episode the other night. It was pretty cool. Yeah. I can't wait to check that out, you know, um, and, and that looks great. I was reading up a little bit um, this morning on what he's up to lately, and that show looks fantastic. And it's hard to believe Bizarre Foods, you know, that was, uh, I think that debuted in 2006. And so it's hard to believe it's been this long, 15 years already, I think. Um, yeah, so. I know. It is It is crazy. I, I He and I were doing this event a few months ago. And uh, I thought, you know, I should brush up. It's been a while since I've seen some of his stuff, and I I was surprised that it was it was 15 years ago, which uh, yep. time does fly. He and I had a really good conversation. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, I'll also put it out. Uh, we'll put it out on the on the the Modern Carnivore YouTube channel because we did do it via Zoom, um, just given the logistics and and uh, the pandemic and everything else. But um, what we're talking about is a lot of the things that, that I, I really want people to see, which is, you know, something that some people may know, not everyone that he is, he is someone who is very supportive and avid relative to fishing and hunting. It makes sense in a lot of respects. And he actually even did do those activities on the show, uh, a, a fair amount. He, he talks about how when he was planning out the schedule for Bizarre Foods, he made sure that he was going to areas where he'd have opportunities to head out either hunting or fishing. And, uh, and so it's pretty cool. You know, he talks about, uh, how he got, how he got into hunting. Uh, he, he didn't start hunting until he was, I think a senior in high school, maybe a buddy has got, got him, got him out goose hunting. And then you would be very interested because actually that was in the mid Hudson Valley when he was going to Vassar college. And then not too long after that, he went on his first deer hunt uh, near, I think I remember this correctly, is it Osable Falls? 
Uh, is that like Western New York? Do you know where that's at, Don? I, I do. So Osable Falls is up in the Adirondacks, I believe. And uh, that's so cool. Yeah, he's got New York ties before he moved out to Minneapolis. And um, I didn't I didn't know that about him. Uh, so I'm incredibly excited about listening to this podcast. That's great. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he's got a really good perspective on, I think, the importance of of really good food and, and how, again, these activities tie into it. And, and he obviously has been preaching a lot, a lot about, um, you know, quality foods, uh, natural ingredients and, and, um, and, and how, you know, our current food system really is impacting our health, our uh, rural economies. He meant talks about, you know, dollar stores are putting small grocers out of business, uh, in, in a lot of rural areas, which is pretty sad. And they're doing it with, um, you know, food selection that is just purely highly processed, uh, nothing fresh, uh, items. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we got some real issues and, in their, in our food economy. And, and so I think he's got a good perspective that people will, will really enjoy hearing. Yeah. He's so versatile too. And he's such a great ambassador for, you know, combining food and storytelling. So I can't wait to hear his perspective on, on all of this, of what you're just saying, Mark. And uh, I'm also interested in checking out, I recently saw he, um, he had a few episodes on MSNBC. I think it was last year. It was called what's eating America. And like he, he talks to some interesting folks and looks at like current events and things like uh, health care and climate change and stuff like that, and then brings it back through a lens of food. Um, so he's a remarkable guy and he's got great perspective. And I just can't wait to, to hear this one. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. He's, he's a good guy. So let's uh, jump right into it, Mr. Andrew Zimmer. Okay, I am here today with uh, with Andrew Zimmer. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm good. How are you? I am. Uh, I'm doing well. It's it's a new year and uh, has a lot of promise in it. Mm -hmm. So, um, thanks so much for coming on uh, to the podcast. Uh, what I wanted to do was to share with the the modern carnivore audience maybe a little bit of a a different perspective of of. Um, how they may know you. They think of you uh, in the kitchen. They think of you as the world traveler going to these crazy places and, and really diving into the culture of people, which I think is, is awesome. And I know everyone appreciates. Um, and, um, but I want to focus on that front end of that process. You've gone to uh, a lot of different cultures and again, looked at these amazing dishes and the majority of the time, I see them starting with they're either hunting the game or they're fishing or they're gathering the ingredients. They're very connected to the ingredients that go into their foods. I think much more so than we generally are here in the U.S. And so um, I guess what are your thoughts on that and, and in terms of maybe our culture and, and getting away from that and the importance of that when it comes to food, when you think about hunting and fishing and such. I, I would uh, take that statement that you just made and amplify it by about a thousand on every side of the equation. Um, uh, Western culture, especially in the United States, uh, has increasingly become disconnected from their food sources. Uh, to the point that the, the fastest growing, uh, uh, quote unquote, food stores in America are, are not supermarkets or farm uh, stands or uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the places that you expect to find real food grown by real people, but in fact are dollar stores, um, both of the big brands. And they, they're essentially even putting supermarkets out of business. They don't even serve fresh food or fresh vegetables. They is the worst possible thing for our human health. So from a health standpoint, being disconnected from our food source over the last uh, three generations has been traumatic to our health system, increasing costs everywhere. Uh, and this is not left or right or, or red or blue issue. It's just we have more sick people in America and we're spending a trillion and a half dollars a year fighting the big four food illnesses. And a lot of that has to do with our diet. I have seen 
in other cultures, the westernization of food preparation, uh, destroying uh, the health and wellness of those cultures by every measurable totem. I'll give you a great example. Uh, in Vietnam, uh, most homes up until 15, 20 years ago didn't have refrigerators. Uh, it wasn't a poverty issue. There was just no need for it. Uh, you had multiple generations of people living under one roof. So there was always someone available to go walk to the corner where there was a green market and a wet market. Uh, you shopped for a meal or two uh, at that time and you just kept doing, you had dry storage and you would keep sauces and rice and things like that. Um, but, you know, you'd go buy uh, a fish, you'd go get some vegetables at the farmer, come back and prepare it. And maybe you'd also buy stuff to prepare for dinner. Um, but you, you, you were going out and, you know, even though you were going to these uh, wet markets and farm stands, you were much more connected to the food itself because of where those products came from. There were no supermarkets. Um, it's just a small example and the Vietnamese grandmother's lament is that their children are not understanding what real Vietnamese food is about because the fastest growing segment of their uh, food system, they are, you know, uh, Western uh, fast food franchises, right? Yeah. The same thing with uh, French culture and, and, and coffee, right? And, and we'll get to the wild food segment in, in a second, but I think it's even, it's more emblematic for people to realize how drastically food disconnection alters culture, right? So uh, in France, there used to be a bar tobacco on every corner of Paris, take a big city, for example. And so people who worked in an ad agency would go three, four times a day down to the bar tobacco grab an espresso, maybe a little cookie, go back, walk back up to the office. Uh, when I speak to uh, Parisian business owners of big companies, they tell me that the worst thing that happened to how uh, people relate to each other in the office and productivity and happiness is the elimination of the bar tobacco and the proliferation of American coffee uh, shops where you go, you get your 16 ouncer and sit in your cubicle, right? So these little things are really upsetting to culture. So what happens when you look at human history through that same lens? And just let's just take the last hundred years, a time where globally more people at that point uh, gathered their food at night for the next day or gathered their food in the morning uh, for that evening, whether it is by foraging, hunting, fishing, etc. It is all, you, are, you are perfectly tethered to your environment. You are aware of conservation and health and wellness and what you eat and what you put into your body. Um, you, are, you are very naturally living in rhythm with the seasons, right? All of these sort of harmonies, and I'm not trying to get too far out there or airy-fairy about this whole thing, but living in that sort of sequential way with the world around you, with the natural world, is what we are inclined to do. So the further that we remove ourselves from that, the less healthy we become, the less connected we become to other people. If we disconnect from our natural world, we disconnect from each other, right? So I do think that uh, increasingly we've become disconnected. I do think it is a huge problem. It is why I'm such an advocate for the environment and for people being able to go out and do that. I live in Minnesota and, you know, here we are more connected, even given the fact that I live in Minneapolis, a big city, because you can reach out and touch a farmer any day of the week, right? I have people here in my office who come from farm families, whose families still, I've, one of my uh, colleagues and uh, business uh partners uh, at our production company has a, a corn farm. Um, these are vital connections. We are able to, in Minnesota, drive a short distance with, without much planning at all. I mean, basically throw something in the back of the car so that you can hunt or fish and gather. And 12 months a year, you can participate in that sort of food life, right? I think it's vitally important that people reconnect to that 
it's why even for those that never thought about you know foraging in their lives have been turned on to it simply by the explosion of the farmers markets that we have because you go to the market and you see all of these mushrooms in season and you know some oh, honey when we on weekends when we go up to the state park and run the dog like we can find all that stuff and and rather than paying whatever 30 bucks a pound uh, for golden chanterelles, we can just go one day and pick them for the whole year, right? Um, you can fish and, and put a meal on your table almost 12 months a year here in this state, obviously, depending on where you are in licensing. I'm not advocating that anybody uh, do anything untoward uh, or illegal. Um, and there are limits on our hunting seasons and on what you can take in possession. But connecting to the land around you and your food system is a vital way. I told uh, some folks a long time ago that like the gas shortage, I'm 59, so I, I remember those, those lines around the block in the 70s and again uh, in the late 90s and the early aughts. The, this idea that if we just got a minimum uh, mile per gallon requirements up above 17, 18, 19, and got it into 20, 21, 22 miles per gallon. Just that small, small efficiency would completely eliminate, completely eliminate our reliance on foreign oil. Why is that important? National security issue. I mean, it affects so many different things. Not only is it better for our environment, but it, it radically changes our, our national security and international uh, relations issues, right? We no longer have to have relationships with countries that we may not want to for a variety of other reasons, just because they happen to produce a lot of oil. So, and we'd all love to be self-sufficient, right? So this is a fairly, again, it's not left, right. It's not red or blue. It's just a common sense sort of thing. We should lose our dependence on foreign oil by American, right? Uh, we have American uh, oil resources uh, in many parts of our country. Um, so this small change would create a drastic shift, benefit our economy, benefit our national security, benefit our position abroad. The same is true by varying your diet. And, and I said this a lot when uh, on talk shows and interviews when I was doing Bizarre Foods. If we can just take a couple meals a week from the wild, right? Let's just say one, one per week from the wild. If we could take one meal a week, not for pleasure. Remember, human beings have eaten for millions of years, but we've only eaten for pleasure, uh, anthropologists say, for about 35,000 years, right? Where, where you make a preference about how you want something prepared, right? The act of cooking meat versus uh, eating it raw, the art of preserving meat, gathering certain foods, right? So we anthropologists can tell us that we've only eaten for pleasure for a certain amount of time. So of those 21 meals a week, what if we, you know, what if we did take a supplement? I mean, they're for sale all over the place. People on diets are popping those little cans of, of things all the time. That's not for, that's not for pleasure. That's for choice. They don't taste very good. They're mocked up to taste good. Um, and it, I, I think, the, the statistics that people who were studying this stuff more serious than I, I did said that if we could just alter our diet for three meals a week, we literally would eliminate our reliance on a lot of factory farmed food, right? Yeah. So I'm not in a position to hunt and fish and gather and grow uh, 12 months a year. I, I have friends who are making that commitment and trying to increase it, indoor gardening, right? Wild cook, stuff like that. But I can purchase those items elsewhere. I can support other people who are doing it. So I think it's increasingly important that we start to take a look at, at ourselves and our families' diets, participate more in food from the wild uh, as a embracing termino terminology uh, tent because our 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 ecosystem uh, that the health of our ecosystem depends on it our personal health depends on it local economies depend on it it would be a radical radical improvement on everything that we're doing if we just altered our diet 
five, 10 degrees, you know, to one side, we would find ourselves in a year healthier as a nation, happier, more self-sufficient, and I think, uh, quite honestly, uh, healthier on a spiritual plane as well, more connect, not religious, spiritual, more connected to the people in the land around us. And I think we've lost that over the last uh, handful of generations. Yeah, I know. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think the, the aspect of, of wild food and let's say hunting and fishing, the, the, the value, one of the values of those activities, I think is that connection creates appreciation and understanding that appreciation and understanding then translates into how do we take care of it into a, a desire to do that. So I saw you um, out crappie fishing the other day. Yeah. <laughs> so where were you? Uh, where were you? What were you up to? Uh, we were we were out uh, way out at the far end of the chain of lakes near uh, Mound. Uh, there's a there's a, a great piece of structure under the lake there at the end of Tuxedo Road uh, that um, some a, a buddy of mine who runs a guiding service, uh, you know, let my son and I go out to his house and uh, and do some ice fishing. Um, you know, I'm a Jewish kid from New York. I, I, when I moved to Minnesota and I saw a house 30 years ago, I saw houses on lakes. I didn't know what they were. I mean, everyone <laughs> talks about this as the running joke when they have guests in there, but it, I lived it. I had no idea what they were. And for years, I did something that I'm not proud of, but I practiced uh, contempt before investigation. Well, who would sit in a house? That's not fun. I love fly fishing. I like deep sea fishing. Uh, I like going out in a boat and, you know, casting for bass on a lake or, you know, you know, trying to get some walleye or northern or whatever in the boat. I love fishing, but sitting in a house with a dinky little rod, what kind of fun is that? And after about eight, nine years of, I realized so many people that I trust, admire, and friends with are doing this, and they tell me it's fun. Maybe I should try it. And I did, and no pun intended, was hooked immediately. Immediately. The, the challenges of ice fishing at a time when there's dormancy among species and all the rest of this kind of stuff was, was fun. The fish, delicious, right? The, all you have to do is, you know, for anyone living in the Midwest is go to a fish feed and, and understand how delicious, you know, crappie and bluegill and perch and, you know, anything else you can pull. But if you're lucky enough uh, to be able to get and keep uh, one of the larger fish uh, that are out there, a northern or a muskie or a walleye, you know, what, you know, some of the best eating in, in, the, in the culinary world. So uh, I go out and not only is the fishing fun, not only is the act of doing, and I love being outdoors, but being outdoors with other people. So whether you're sitting on buckets around a hole or whether you're in an ice house, um, I have a six, well, he's almost be 16 in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I have a teenager, right? And there's only so many things that we have in common. When we fish together, it is literally the best three or four hours of conversation that we'll have all week long if we go out once a week, right? So I make it a, I make it a point to go fishing with my son uh, every opportunity that I get because our shared time together creates bonds and memories. But while you're sitting there with a rod in your hand, trolling on a lake, casting from a bass boat, perched over an ice hole, it's so easy to actually have a real conversation with someone else and that someone else in my case is the person that I'm most eager to connect to, which is my son, right? It's not that I don't want to go sit in an ice house with you, Mark. We would have a great conversation. We would connect. We'd be, we would deepen our relationship. That would happen, right? You know, you go spend three or four hours with anyone in a duck blind or a deer stand or an ice house or a bass boat. It's going to happen. Or a walk in the woods looking for mushrooms or fiddleheads or ramps or whatever it is that you want to gather. But when you are able to use a tool like fishing to increase and deepen the relationship with the, in my case, the person who's most important in my life, my son, what a who wouldn't do that? Now, we happen to be in a pretty fancy house, probably the fanciest one I've ever been in. 
it's, it has folding beds that go up to the side. It technically sleeps five, four really comfortably. Five is kind of pushing it, uh, but five super, uh, four super comforting. Uh, it has a little stove, a sink. Uh, it has a, a microwave. You can plug in your, your phone and listen to your own music on speakers. You have uh, cameras in the water. There's lights. There's things that make the experience almost 23rd century. I was blown away. And I had never used some of the latest uh, tech that uh, my friend Jeff had in his house. And to be able to see on a, on a, on a graphic perched over my hole, there's five or six holes in the house, see my line go down, my lure represented by a small red bar, and see the fish at the different layers. And what happens when I put it down and start to slowly jig and retrieve and watch what rises up after it? Amazing. Transformative from a fishing standpoint. I thought that it would make it uh, somehow less sporting, not at all. In fact, I was able to learn more about how the fish behave, right? We're doing catch and release, right? So we're just pulling fish out, throwing them in. We got about 25 uh, in the house all day long, released them all. But we had some really thrilling experiences. We turned on the cameras and he has two that go down. So you're seen in a 360 degree circle around the house. So, you know, my kid took one camera one side, I took one camera on the other side to watch the fish behave, right? And to see all the crappies and the sunnies that are down there and watch this. And all of a sudden, I mean, we just got our little, you know, uh, hook with a, a wax worm on it. All of a sudden the fish take off. And Jeff, you know, it's like, oh, that's weird. You know, and Jeff is like, no, that just means that there's some big fish just swam in with that in a eight or nine foot circle of where we're sitting and you know, the, the muskies and the, the northerns, they'll just stop and they'll sit there for hours, dead still, because they're just waiting for a meal, right? So we were also running uh, long lines uh, with uh, big minnows on them to try to attract those fish. And, you know, our guide uh, would demonstrate to us that by you know, letting, waiting 30 minutes, hitting the bottom of the lake, right, with the weight so that our, our minnow is a, we, we had one that was about a foot above uh, the bottom of the lake, we're in about 28 feet of water, and then we had another one about a foot underneath the surface, because some of the really big fish like to linger up there sometimes as well. It was, it's a confusing time uh, to ice fish, uh, because the fish are, are puzzled. A lot of the underwater vegetation was still green because the ice was, you know, we had a mild December. So the ice formation was still, they were still getting a lot of sun. So the fish are kind of confused, but we had so much fun playing around with three, four species of fish. What could we do to interest them? Watching it on the screen. Uh, I mean, I just don't think there's any more fun in the world than doing that. And, and, and while we did release everything, when I've had the opportunity uh, to keep a couple of big pan fish and either just flash them in a saute pan or bread them and fry them, right out of the water is absolutely fantastic. They get a little bit more fat on their bodies during the, the winter and they just taste absolutely wonderful. And it's, to be able to take a meal like that is just is just an absolute treat. And I get out fishing once a month, 12 months a year. Uh, I'm planning a trip to Costa Rica to do some uh, fancier fishing uh, in March. Uh, really excited for that. Um, I did some fly fishing uh, this summer on several trips to Utah uh, that was incredible, incredible. Uh, we had so much turf to ourselves uh, because so many people were not out and traveling in the great outdoors this summer. Uh, we were lucky enough. I drove out uh, to Utah. You know, at that point, I, I wasn't really comfortable flying. And to get out on some of the more famous uh, river systems in our country, uh, where there's less pressure on the fish and less people in the quote unquote good spots, I'll, I'll tell you, it was 
it was incredible. The bite was, the bite's been great all year long uh, for us. We had one day fishing for bass uh, on our local chain of lakes. Uh, my son got two fish in the boat uh, that were over four pounds, which is, you know, I mean, our guy would, was really, he had been part of the group. He had taken out the group that had won $100,000 the weekend beforehand. And he said either one of those fish would have would have been in the money. Noah was just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Uh, so I absolutely love it. Um, did some good pheasant hunting uh, this year for the one day I got out. I, I've missed duck and goose uh, and my goose hunting buddies back in New York keep sending me just incredible uh, pictures of what they're doing out there in Long Island uh, where I, I first learned to, to goose hunt. Uh, it's, it's, it is just an absolute blast of a time and there's nothing better than putting uh, meat or fish or uh, anything else you find in your own uh, refrigerator or freezer. I, I will tell you one interesting story. Uh, I, I, the thing I forage in the winter time uh, the most is, uh, is watercress. Um, now it just got a little too icy, but right, right the day after Christmas, I went for a, a walk in uh, at Minnehaha Falls. And I walked down to the edge and kind of hit the thin ice with my heel because I know where the places are in some of the little streams and stuff like that. Uh, and there's this beautiful bright green crest that is peppery and mustardy and fantastic. Um, and I made a, uh, brought home a salad uh, for my kid and I uh, from our walk in the state park. Um, we, he reminded me that we, when we were in uh, Hawaii the last time, several years ago, we'd waded out by some rocks and gone around the back side of them where the surf pounds and we got some really sturdy, fresh sea lettuce uh, because you can only eat sea lettuce when it's attached to a rock. If it's been floating around, you don't know where it's been, right? what water system has affected it, right? Or, or how old it is. But if it's attached to a rock, you know it's healthy and fresh. So we got some sea lettuce and some opihi, some small little, uh, they're one-sided clams, they're limpets, right? Uh, and we're able to eat lunch on the beach together from what we found. And my kid reminded me that we've actually done more foraging on water together than almost anything else. Uh, and I sat back and I thought to myself, you know, at least in terms of messaging to my kid, I've done the right thing. Hey, this is Mark, and I just want to quickly thank you for listening to the podcast and also tell you about one of our partners, Sitka Salmon Shares. This company is like a vegetable CSA, except for it's completely focused on wild-caught Alaskan fish. So here's how it works. You pre-order your share of the harvest for the upcoming fishing season, which is April to December. And then this determines how much they're going to target in their catch for the season. Result is each month you'll get your share of the catch delivered right to your doorstep. This is about four and a half to five pounds of fish. So here's what I love about this company. These are real independent small boat family fishermen. Check out their stories and videos on their website. You know, it's it's not a multinational corporation with staff who are on a factory boat processing the fish. These are small boat fishermen. And they're focused on responsibly catching these fish, both from the methods they use, which nearly eliminate bycatch, to targeting the right species at the right time so that they can sustainably manage the fishery up there. And the result is some of the best quality fish you could get anywhere. So go to sitkasalmonshares.com and use the code modcarn 25 on checkout and you'll get $25 off your premium share for the upcoming fishing season. Again, just enter modcarn 25 on checkout at sitkasalmonshares.com. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That is that is great that you, you have that to share. Uh, my son and I are, are I think, going to go up uh, ice fishing on Shaquamigan Bay up on Superior this uh, this weekend. Oh, I'm jealous. And, uh, and I'm just, uh, it's one of those things, like you said, uh, a friend of mine used to say, 
he was relatively new to uh, new to fishing as an adult. And he said, you know, the activity gives me just enough to do where my mind is occupied and nothing more. And that's what he loved about it. And, and I think that is the aspect of doing it with someone else and the social aspect, even if you're inside a little shack out on the ice, now you're able to connect with people. There, there are groups here in Minnesota, actually, that, um, that do counseling and work with youth who have very traumatic uh, situations of violence. And there are some of the counselors who've talked about how getting them out fishing has been the only way to provide an opportunity to really address these really deep issues. Everything else they tried, it was challenging to either, it was forced, what have you. And when they're out fishing, it just naturally comes around, which well, is it's, really It's fascinating. I mean, I study, I, I study stress and trauma uh, and anxiety where there's a lot of mental health issues in, in, in my family. And I've been very public about my own. Um, a friend of mine wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago it, about uh, lowering stress in the workplace. And I'm having deja vu. I may have talked to you about this, but the, the idea that if you go and play catch uh, for 15 minutes in the middle of the day, uh, your work stress decreases a thousand fold. <laughs> and it, it's very simple, uh, you know, biology 101 you know, we have uh, an amygdala, uh, which controls all of our emotional uh, life, our freeze, flight, and fly mentality. All of our deep-seated emotions are in our amygdala. So when we're in trauma or stress or anxiety, our amygdala is sort of pulsing and pounding. And around our amygdala, wrapped around it, is our prefrontal cortex, where all of our logic and decision-making comes from. So if you're experiencing upset of any kind, the recommendation, and you know that it's like everything your mom or grandma told you is true. When you're upset and grandma said, you know, go do a puzzle, you know, go do, you know, the reason grandma, I think sat there and did needlepoint all the time is when you're doing needlepoint, you're focusing on pushing the needle through a teeny little hole in the fabric and not uh, piercing your upper finger to pull it through when you're playing catch with someone and someone throws a ball at you, you don't want it to hit your face. So your amygdala shuts down and your body actually focuses all the attention, the prefrontal cortex, which is like raise your arm and glove and catch the ball, right? That's not the amygdala. That's your prefrontal cortex. So if you want to get out of upset, do an activity that requires all of your attention. Now for me, the one that I do every day, several times a day is cooking. When you have a knife in your hands and you're doing the kind of cooking that I like to do, uh, you, you, it's almost impossible to think about the problems of the day. You're, you're focused on, on how you're preparing something. Same with fishing, same with farming. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of stories on this on Bizarre Foods and What's Eat America about how farming is helping uh, traumatized uh, vets work through their PTSD issues. There are even uh, residential treatment centers that are on farms in America that specifically are devoted to our, our veterans um, who, have, who have come home traumatized uh, from experiences uh, overseas. And the act of farming and growing food and preparing it is therapeutic. The act of fishing for people is therapeutic. You know, we used to think there was canine and equine therapy, and now there are all these other therapies. And what they have in common is that they hold your attention, but more importantly, they require all of your prefrontal cortex to be engaged. You can't worry about your relationship with your boss or your wife or, you know, whatever your issue is, or engage fully with your PTSD when you're on a horse because you're trying to, to work in concert with this animal, right? You have to focus on that. And your amygdala is even telling you uh, to be still. Your, your amygdala actually gets engaged in the right way so that you create a pathway between the two that eliminates a lot of the bad way of thinking. The science on this is, is fascinating. And yeah. I think we all know uh, as, as, you know, so many of, you know, the, the great conservationist writers and naturalists of 
the 19th and 18th centuries wrote, you know, nothing more soothing than a walk in the woods. And that that's really true. Um, we went out the other day and walked around uh, in the woods near our house uh, and we counted uh, all the animals that we'd seen on our walks. And we got up to about 18 or 19. And I'm not, 12 of them were not birds, right? <laughs> but it was incredible. You know, we actually saw a badger three days ago, a monstrous one, and they very rarely wow. come out of their holes. Yeah, it was it, pretty crazy. Uh, and some of the people that were on the walk with us were like, I didn't even know badgers lived in Minnesota. It's like, yeah, they do. They actually thought it was a giant raccoon, <laughs> which was insane, right? Uh, I, I am, I am such a proponent of this from a mental health and wellness, yeah. uh, standpoint. I can't, I can't stress it enough. If, if, if anyone out there is looking for a way, uh, to even just to chase away the blues that we all deal with, forget about real trauma and real stress and real anxiety or the free floating uncertainty of the times we live in, you have to have, you have to develop a spiritual practice of some kind. People who don't have a spiritual practice of some kind are swimming in the ocean without a life vest nearby. I mean, eventually you're going to get tired. You need to rest. The, the outdoors, you know, to bring it back to the thing that you and I share, that love of the outdoors, that love of, of living this life that includes seasonal uh, relationships with the outdoors and activities is a grounding spiritual activity. It does lower the toxicity of our times. The solution is not sitting in your apartment or your house worrying. The solution is going outdoors and looking for mushrooms in the in the spring or kicking the thin ice uh, right up trees for watercress or, you know, sticking a line in the ice. That is that is the solution to so many of our modern day problems. And you get to put food on the table. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't agree more. So, where did you get your start in the outdoors, hunting, fishing? When was it as an adult, or was it out in New York when you were young? As a kid, my my dad, uh, we didn't call it foraging uh, when I was in the single digits, but I would go out with my dad every weekend, and we'd rake for clams in the bay. We would let chicken legs rot from the week beforehand, you know, in a box. Uh, inside, you know, a can uh, out by the outdoor shower. We put a uh, string on them. We'd throw them into the estuary, the ponds behind the dunes that were a mix of salt and fresh water. And we'd slowly pull them. And then you just lower your net and you'd pick up 20 blue crabs. You know, my father, I was, you know, obviously six, seven, eight years old. He'd hold me by my ankles and he would drop me down between the rocks of the jetty, my mother screaming, don't let him go, don't let him go. I was so excited because I would go down and I would see these giant ropes of mussels hanging and you grab them and then we take them and clean them and steam them in a pot on a fire on the beach. My dad would surf cast uh, at sunset uh, on the beach. We would go fishing uh, for bluefish and striped bass. We'd go eeling in Three Mile Harbor. Um, you know, I, I think I was the only eight-year-old that I knew. By the way, in the late 60s, there were not sushi bars in New York City. They didn't exist. So we didn't know about, you know, that wonderful cooked eel and that wonderful, you know, uh, kabiyaki sauce that everyone seems to love as an introduction to sushi. And then they can't believe they're eating eel, right? Just because it's wonderfully <laughs> sweet and salty and fatty. Um but I knew how to clean an eel by the time I was nine years old and cut them into sections and grill them and eat them like a, a, a pear or apple and just leave the little center bone uh, behind. So it started with the water. Uh, my mother had a garden, so I had an appreciation for that. And again, we didn't call it foraging, uh, but yeah. we went to the beach uh, at the right time of year and gathered rose hips uh, from all the wild uh, bushes that were growing just in from the dunes. And my mother would make rose hip jelly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't call it foraging. We were just right. making rose hip jelly, but that was, that was the life. So when my friends, you know, again, growing up in New York City in an apartment and, you know, being a Jewish kid, multiple generations of family living in apartments in New York dating back uh, to the 1870s, uh, 
we weren't gun owners. Uh, no one in my family hunted. Uh, but I, uh, I had a friend who my senior year in high school uh, introduced me to goose hunting and I fell in love with it. And then I went to college the next year and uh, I was in the mid Hudson Valley in Poughkeepsie, New York at Vassar College. And you're then with other young men and women from all over the country and they had family. Oh, you got You like that? You got to come deer hunting. So the first late October of my freshman year in college, we went up to a friend of mine's house in near Osable Falls in Western New York. Some of the best deer hunting, some of the best deer hunting in the world is up there. And I went deer hunting for the first time. Epic. And as a culinarian, and I already, the die was already cast by the time I was in college. The fascination with how to break down an animal. I knew some butchery. I knew how to break down a leg, right? I knew how to break down a short loin, but I didn't know how to take an animal, you know, from, from hoof to, to freezer chest, right? But you learn really fast and it just took off uh, from there. So by the time Bizarre Foods started shooting, um, I purposely steered uh, the production stories to make sure um, that in every country in the world that I visited, every show that I could, some it wasn't possible, but almost everyone, I got on a boat to fish or I got out uh, to hunt. So the list of experiences for hunting and fishing that I have is second to none. I mean, from green stick fishing uh, for 500 pound tuna in the deep Pacific, I think I'm one of the few people living in the world who's not a native Samoan Islander to eat a giant scallop uh, that we forged. The tribal peoples there are allowed to take one a year. I was able to share in that experience. We're talking about a scallop that whose shell measures about two and a half feet in all sides and weighs about 75 pounds. Uh, just getting up out of the water is crazy enough. Um, I've hunted wild boar uh, in Poland. I, you know, at the time uh, was in Boone and Crockett. I took the 25th largest uh, uh, buffalo um, in, the, in the world one year, uh, whose head is mounted in my house. Uh, antelope in Southern Africa, wildebeest in Namibia. Um, and I had the, the great treat of my life. And, and sadly, it was too early on in my TV career to appreciate it. And I, I hope I'm not humble bragging, but when we did our, our show in England, uh, we, we were allowed to hunt at Balmoral. The, the government wanted to let us do that story um, and to be suited up in the, in, the, in, in the Queen's armory and to be handed, you know, a, a, hundred-year-old Holland and Holland gun and have them, they have the list of who shot with it, you know, and Winston Churchill shot with that gun. And wow. he was not a big hunter, but the, the list was deep. I mean, oh that, that, that's gosh. just he's a personal hero of mine. And to sit there and to go out that, you know, for hundreds of years, they've groomed the landscape and planted trees and everything so that they, when they do a driven hunt and there's, dozens of, of drivers pushing the pheasant over these ridges, these berms that have been built up. And by the time you're told by, by your guide to stand and fire, your heart is beating because the noise is deafening because the, the pheasant lift up and come into the next heavy set of grass. And they trim the grass at the top of the berms so they know what the pheasant are going to do. They know what the... So by the time you stand and fire... There's hundreds of pheasant in the air. I've never seen anything like it before or since. So to participate in that kind of stuff, to, to hunt for red stag in Scotland, I reposted something on my Instagram like four or five weeks ago because it popped up uh, in a blizzard in white camo hunting for red stag in, uh, and roe deer in, in the mountains of Scotland. I, I mean, I pinch myself for those experiences. And, and what it's taught me is that uh, is to is to not hold on to those things, but to share them as experiences that help us unite and connect cultures and to really preach this lesson that being in the outdoors is a healthy panacea to so many of our modern problems. 
No, absolutely. It, it is. Those are amazing adventures. You know, I was looking back before you and I did our event a few weeks ago and looking at you in Kazakhstan, Taipei, Rome, all over. And, and I mean, I can't even imagine uh, how fun those adventures were. And and oh. I love that you built hunting and fishing around every one of them. Well, secretly, I mean, like I made sure to stick every story because I loved it. You know, you talk about the, the, uh, those adventures, you know, Kazakhstan, I had the privilege of hunting for rabbit with golden eagles, something that is traditional in that culture for thousands and thousands of years. You know, this is how those, those people who live in the steppes uh, of that country uh, are able to feed themselves, especially during the winter time. There's hard scrabble ground everywhere. There's very little cover. So you can't stalk a rabbit. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, but you can on horseback see and the, 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 the hunting teams that go and do this just absolutely incredible. They can see uh, these giant hair or they know where they're located. And when they unmask their birds, the birds will tell them that there's a, because the eagle has a much better, better vision than you or I, the birds will get excited, then they'll mask back up and they'll go to a place where they, they believe the bird can see it better. And then they release the bird and to partner, not with a gun or a fishing rod or a basket in your hand to pull mushrooms, but to partner with an animal to do the hunting for you. And watching this, this eagle dive bomb, this 15 pound giant rabbit, was one of the most breathtaking things I've ever seen. And then to do it with a gear falcon, one of the fastest, I think it's the fastest bird in the world, uh, but it only weighs about a pound. I mean, it's teeny, these little tiny little gear falcons, but they have an internal structure that allows them to fly very high and they have great eyes and they're very small with very pointy beaks. So what they do, it's like angry birds. They see the pheasant or they see the rabbit or the or the bird because uh, they'll kill other birds and they will literally just tuck their wings in and dive bomb and they're a mile up and by the time they get to the ground throughout the whole valley you can hear the impact sound as they basically concuss uh the life out of the other animal and then you know they they go at the throat and pull the organs out that's what they want to eat you put a little piece of meat in your hand and give it to the gear falcon and pull the rabbit or the bird away from it and you know, that's how it's done. Hunting with red falcons. It, I mean, that takes precision and timing. So, but for someone who's hunted uh, for uh, lots of different birds with dogs, whether it's grouse or pheasant or using a retriever to pull a, a, a duck out of the water, to actually be working in consort with another animal uh, is, is just amazing, especially one that takes essentially a lifetime of training. The amount of time that bird hunters uh, those that hunt with birds of prey uh, put into training and working with their birds. It's, it's unreal watching that relationship. You just can't believe how smart these birds are. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I, I, I remember watching that episode and I, I think the whole falconry space is just uh, really interesting. We've got a pretty, a pretty vibrant falconry uh, club here in Minnesota, I know, and they go around to the suburbs. I, I they, they sort of chuckle at, I think the best places for them to go is in these uh, uh, industrial parks in the suburbs uh, where all the rabbits are and they'll take their, their hawks and their That's falcons right. out. <laughs> but it's, it's crazy watching how each bird does it differently. You know, I mean, the, the red-tailed hawk sort of flies over its prey and then kites back around and hits it. Uh, the, you know, the gear falcon goes up high. The eagle just goes, I mean, it's an eagle. It just goes right at the thing. I and mean, the eagle is afraid of nothing. Uh, but, but having that animal on your arm and then using whatever the cue word is, is just hysterical. The one guy that I was with in Colorado uh, hunting for wild hair there. Uh, her keyword was, uh, she had to say the word Christmas three times uh, because when she had, had gotten her first bird and was training it, she's like, well, the animal is a present to us. So I'm just gonna, my keyword is gonna be Christmas. Uh, so you, you, know, you go out there and you're like Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. And the, the bird will only take off on three Christmases right? <laughs> the, the restraint that the bird, the bird can yeah. see the, the prey, right? And you have to take the hood off and then give the cue. It's just amazing. Just yeah, amazing. fascinating. So you got the ancient traditions around food, around hunting. Um, 
but maybe t- I'd like you to just touch on on your your new project, which I just watched the other night, Family Dinner on the Magnolia Network, which gets to culture, but American culture and the importance of family, right? Is that well, the thing? Yeah, yeah. In our in Bizarre Foods, I put a family meal in every single episode of Bizarre Foods because I want people in Ireland to see how people in Singapore ate and vice versa. Um, we all eat the same way. All grandparents in every culture tell their kids to sit up straight and be kind to strangers and finish everything on your plate. It's universal, universal. Even in the tribal world, they say it. So it was very important to me. And so when I had the opportunity to do a show on Magnolia, uh, and they had wanted to do a, an intuitive content show, our production company, uh, we immediately pitched them on family dinner. Uh, and then they asked me if I would host it. And I said, absolutely. And uh, people can find it on Discovery Plus right now. And then in uh, at the end of March, I believe is the plan for Magnolia Network to ap- actually take over what is now DIY. Um, and all the episodes will be available there. And then I think they'll all be available on D+. Uh, but it is, it, it's a very simple concept. Uh, I travel around the country and uh, spend the day with a family as they get ready for their family dinner. We've lost, you know, we started the conversation talking about what we've lost, that connection. We've, we've lost the connection of a family meal. We used to eat all of our family meals together every day. Uh, now people have to make special arrangements to, to do one, right? You're like, right. let's get everyone together Sunday night, you know, the aunts and uncles, whatever, whoever's around locally. That can also be uh, non-bio families. Think uh, firemen in a firehouse communally eat together and take their meals when they're, when they're on duty. So we, we thought there was so much to be learned by exploring that and, and we were right. And it's a, it's a beautiful show. If you love food, there's lots of food for you. If you love that idea of connection and real people telling real stories, because obviously we cast the show for families that all have something very important to share, uh, whether it's a recent death or loss, or whether it's a, a, a new Im- a family of new immigrants to America uh, trying to preserve their culture, or a family of um, uh, fourth generation Italians who are trying to hold on to grandma's recipes. We, we cover it all, and it's, it's really quite an impressive uh, show. I'm really thrilled with the way it turned out. So Discovery Plus and then Magnolia Network, he'll be taking over. Absolutely. And if people go to andrewzimmern.com, we'll have all that. We have all that information there all the time. Okay, great. I got one last question for you. Um, So I was out uh, Dark House Spearing uh, this last weekend, and I got uh, two really nice Northern Pike. Yep. And in the theme of um, whole animal uh, utilization. I'm, I'm planning on doing a, a fish stock. Yep. Uh, what would you recommend? What are some keys to good fish stock? Well, I, I hate to say it, but the only fish that I don't make stock or broth out of are freshwater fish, but just because I have a lot of saltwater, water fish, uh, and access and access to them. So over the course of uh, my food week, food month, uh, I will acquire, uh, because I like to grill and roast uh, whole fish, because I believe in full utilization. And, you know, I will buy whole fish and fillet them myself. So I'm talking about two, three uh, pound uh, bass and snapper and stuff like that from the, from the local fishmonger. And so I have my saltwater bones right? That Mm -hmm. make a richer and more flavorful Mm -hmm. stock. Mm -hmm. However, I do occasionally, because I can't deal with throwing it away, we'll make stock from freshwater fish if we have a big catch, because I learned from the first peoples of the Americas, our our native tribal peoples, when I did stories up in northern Minnesota, about the fish soups that they would make, right? So I do take the head, the tail, the bellies, and I sweat a white mirepoix, onions, leeks, celery, some garlic, some sprigs of herbs, uh, add my bones, cold water, bring it to a, a simmer, not a boil, a simmer, 
and lower the heat to maintain the barest simmer possible. And I go about two hours. Oh, you go two hours. Okay. Two hours. Then I turn with freshwater fish. Then I turn off uh, because you don't, they they have less iodine in their bone system than saltwater fish do. uh, So you don't run the risk of tainting your stock. So I let it go for about two hours, kill the heat, let it cool, let any uh, solid settle to the bottom, strain it through fish, uh, uh, through uh, cloth, uh, and, uh, and then I utilize. And I'll use it to make a seafood, uh, most typically I, I try to pay tribute to our state here in Minnesota, make a, uh, a seafood wild rice soup. Everyone always makes a creamy chicken wild rice soup. Yeah. And so I load up vegetables and the fish broth, and then I'll use either some of the freshwater fish or I'll throw in other things I have in my freezer, little bits of, you know, maybe I've got six shuck clams and a half pound of shrimp or whatever it is, I just throw it in there. Um, I also will use it for uh, risotto, uh, which is great where you eat a lot of stock. And if you're doing uh, a seafood risotto, uh, why not use that wonderful broth that you made? So I, I do use it. It also makes really great uh, uh, stock for wild rice soup with just mushrooms. That hmm. mushroom seafood wild rice yeah. trilogy uh, yeah. in there is a really great flavor combination. Well, I think that's what I'm going to have to do. So I was, I, I'm going to do it this afternoon, and I've got some of that wild rice that I harvested this last fall. So I think you just that gave, you me, gave a great me some idea. of. I did exactly, and so you'll have to let me know. Hopefully, that works out for one of those soups sometime. Oh, absolutely, I will. Well, great. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon and uh, all the best to you in the new year here. And likewise to you. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 